Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I talked to Harsha Walia, author, writer and organiser, on her book Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. We discuss the nature and location of the border, its functionality to global capitalism and imperialism, and how the left can organise to resist right-wing populism in the age of nationalism and climate breakdown. Thank you so much to our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want to access the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favorite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. As always, a big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Harsha Walia on her motivations for writing Border and Rule. Hello, Harsha Walia, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. And today we're going to discuss your most recent book, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism and the Rise of Racist Nationalism, which I think is a really brilliant book that kind of changed the way I think about borders. And I really recommend that readers buy it. It's out now with Haymarket, and we'll put a link in the description. So, Harsha, can you tell us a little about why you wanted to write this book now and where your interest in migration, imperialism and racial capitalism comes from? Yeah, I think for me, um, I've been organizing in social movements, particularly migrant justice movements for almost two decades. And, uh, you know, without going into too much of an an autobiography, I just have personal and family history uh, around the impacts of border controls and the ways in which borders enact violence. And the motivation to write the book at this time in particular was, you know, really witnessing how we're in the midst of growing xenophobic nationalism, a lot of which pivots specifically around anti-migrant xenophobia, and also just witnessing, you know, the massive scale of border militarization alongside massive displacement, particularly post-2015 when the world declared a migration crisis, a refugee crisis in Europe, in the US and North America and Australia and elsewhere, just witnessing the buildup in these past five or six years around the border and wanting to take uh, an internationalist and global approach, because I think oftentimes we become really domesticated and national in our understandings of border politics, which is, you know, ironically the opposite, I think, of what an internationalist leftist movement should be doing, which is thinking about how these structures move, how they travel, and what the impacts are globally. So it really was um, all of that that motivated me to write in this time, in this moment. You open with what I think is a really interesting kind of vignette uh, about um gentrification and migration um you say you know i was on this radio show and i'm talking about gentrification and someone calls up and says oh but you know you write about how we need to kind of get rid of borders and yet you're policing where people can move within the city i think that was a really interesting way of introducing the subject and contrasting what we're talking about here and the power dynamics that you really want to discuss when you're when you're talking about migration so can you talk a little bit about why you open with that and what that shows about the discussion about migration that we're that we're kind of stuck in at the moment 
Yeah, I I opened with that really because it sat with me for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, I have been involved in anti-gentrification organizing um, also alongside migrant justice organizing. I've also been involved in organizing with indigenous movements and indigenous solidarity. And oftentimes, you know, there's that question posed of, oh, how do you believe in indigenous sovereignty if you also believe in no one is illegal, right? Very similar Mm. to the idea of how do you fight against gentrification while believing in no one is illegal. And so these these kinds of seeming contradictions, I really wanted to tackle head on um, and to make the argument that the border is less about a politics of movement, which is what we often think about. We think about migration um, as movement, but really that it is a method of state formation mm. and immobility. And, you know, that in that way, the border isn't as much about movement because, of course, in a, in, you know, while we're experiencing mass immobility of refugees and migrants and undocumented people, we're also witnessing the massive movement of capital, right? Capital is globalized. Mm. And also there's mass movement of of people in terms of luxury travel, expats, vacationing, right? In some ways we have access to the world like never before in terms of the past 50 years with, you know, air travel, luxury travel, etc. So I really wanted to delink the border from the assumptions of it being about controlling or facilitating movement per se, and really to understand it as a as inherently a part of state formation and racial capitalism. And so in that way, you know, as I argue in that opening vignette, arguing for no one is legal is actually not contradictory, but alongside and parallel to fighting gentrification, because gentrification is about amassing power. It's about displacing people. And that is what my border controls are also about. It's mm. about displacing people and constricting mobility. So I, you know, as I say in the book, I argue that our migrants and refugees have more in common with those who are fighting anti-gentrification struggles than they do with gentrifiers, um, even though at the face of it, they that might be the seeming contradiction. Tell us a little bit more about this idea of, of border imperialism, which I think is an, an interesting concept. How does it sit with, for example, traditional Marxist analysis of, of empire, mm-hmm. both in terms of, you know, the more traditional and framing of kind of capital export, but also mm-hmm. uh, more recent Marxist analysis of, um, you know, financialization and uh, and the role of financial globalization and facilitating extraction from the global south, that kind of more kind of political economic analysis of imperialism? Yeah, I'd offer, you know, maybe three little bits to that. The first is, for me, the framing around border imperialism is to understand how migrants don't just come to be, right? That there are Mm. global forces like imperialism, like capitalist extraction, Mm. like free trade agreements, export processing zones, drone warfare, all of these methods of imperialism um, actually create migration. And oftentimes when we talk about migrants and refugees, we think uh, that they just kind of arrive at our border, wherever our border is, whether Mm. that's the EU, whether that's the US-Mexico border, wherever. And we rarely ask the question of, you know, how were migrants produced? (laughs) There's nothing inherently natural about the production of this kind of mass migration in our contemporary era. And I think one of the most powerful slogans that responds to that is the slogan of we are here because you are there, right? We are here because you are there, which implicates these global patterns of violence, the asymmetry of imperialism, those that violent extraction and deliberate underdevelopment of the global south that has produced mass displacement while constricting mobility. 
so that I think is, the, you know, the first way in which we need to think about migration as inherently tied up within imperialism. And, you know, one of the things that Stuart Hall said, the great Stuart Hall, mm. is migration is increasingly the joker in the globalization pack, right? Um, which is how, you know, migration is a, is a consequence of these global forces. The second thing that I would offer is that it's not only that imperialism is a cause of displacement and migration, but also one of the things that I argue in Border and Rule is that imperialism is increasingly central to how migration is even managed. So it's not only that imperialism is kind of a cause and effect in terms of displacement and migration, but that migration management itself globally is increasingly becoming a central pillar of imperialism. And I think the ways in which we can see that is particularly how border outsourcing Mm. is the norm, right? So the frontiers of border militarization are not the U.S.-Mexico border wall, is not, you know, fortress Europe around Europe, is not, you know, simply, you know, Australian fortification of its border. But that border outsourcing has meant that every time countries in the global south, particularly countries in Central America and, you know, Mexico, the Oceania region, the Sahel region in Africa, the Middle East, these are, countries in these regions have been compelled to accept external checkpoints, boots on the ground, migration prevention campaigns, offshore detention as conditions of trade and aid agreements. So one of the arguments I make in Border and Rule is that the new frontiers of border militarization are actually countries in the global south, right? Mm. Countries like Libya, Mali, Mexico, Nairu, Niger, Papua New Guinea, Turkey, Sudan. So these countries are being forced to accept global outsourcing of borders and particularly Western border outsourcing um, and are being forced to build entire infrastructures of migration control, not you know, not because they've necessarily chosen to, but because the management of global migration through border outsourcing has compelled these countries to do so. So it's becoming a way of preserving imperial relations, right? So in mm. some cases, some countries, you know, up to one third of their GDP is based on receiving monies from other countries like Nairu, one third of its GDP in certain years was Australian, quote unquote, aid money that was really money for Nairu to build entire infrastructures of offshore detention. And so I think in this contemporary era, we have to understand how immigration diplomacy and migration prevention is a central pillar in contemporary imperial dynamics. Um, the last thing that I was going to add in terms of how we understand capitalism and this, this question of a Marxist analysis of capital and borders is I think, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether in an era of, you know, advanced capitalism that we're in, in neoliberalism, where capital is globalized, whether borders actually protect against the free flow of capital, right? And one of the, the last arguments that I make in this book is that, that it is a flawed logic to assume that the border will protect against globalized capital, mm. because actually what, what borders, do, you know, what free capital requires is immobilized labor, right? That's an that's not a contradiction. That's a necessary underlying condition. And the border is a key method of creating immobilized labor, because it is another additional method of segmenting labor. So you know, we know 
that labor is already segmented across race, class, gender, ability, sexuality, and more. And then the border adds another layer of segmentation, which is citizenship. And that is exactly what allows, for example, the facilitation of mass temporary migrant worker programs, where even though migrant workers or undocumented workers are laboring within the nation state, it's their segmentation as so-called migrant workers or undocumented workers that makes them precarious. And so I argue that the border is not a method of, uh, of protecting workers. It's actually a method of dividing workers. And that is precisely why no border politics is a pro-worker position and a shut down the border or close the border or, you know, we don't, or in a kind of abolition of temporary worker program positions, these positions that increasingly unions are taking on are actually fundamentally anti-worker because they lower the wage floor rather than lift up the wage floor. Going back to that second part of, of your answer there, you talked about the outsourcing of um, of basically the border to different countries in the world. But this isn't just outsourcing in kind of spatial and geographical terms. It's also mm. outsourcing to the private sector. There are obviously mm-hmm. a number of very large outsourcing companies that make huge amounts of money by taking on some of the roles that were previously monopolized by the state in terms of managing migrant populations, whether that's running detention centers, whether it's kind of providing extra force at the border. And this is another way in which actually, you know, that kind of link between the public and private in terms of the management of these populations is facilitating capital accumulation. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's so important to understand how the, the massive security industry, whether it's militarizing the border, whether it's mercenaries that are, you know, an appendage to the military industrial complex or private security that are an appendage to police, you know, that these really exist alongside state violence, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Eric Prince, for example, who um, listeners may recall, and you may recall, who was the operator of the infamous Blackwater business, spanning from Iraq to New Orleans, you know, Eric Prince's kind of newest idea that he's been peddling is a public-private partnership to further militarize the Mediterranean, which is already the world's deadliest border, right? And and he's, again, just one example of many. And, you know, the TNI um, has done extensive research on the kind of massive billions of dollars that are being accrued by militarizing, particularly the U.S.-Mexico border and Fortress Europe. And so I think absolutely, you know, there's uh, one of the ways in which capital accumulates is through this growing carceral state. You know, one of the myths of, of austerity, of course, is that we have a shrinking welfare state because there aren't resources. But we know that a shrinking welfare state is actually alongside a massively expanding carceral state, right? Prisons, police, border militarization, um, et cetera, or military spending, these are all ballooning. And so one of the falsity and one of the myths of neoliberal austerity is the idea of a shrinking state because Mm. we actually have a massively expanding state, right? The state is not withering away under globalization. And I think having said that, the one thing that I um, think that we have to be attuned to, particularly in the United States, is that oftentimes a focus on the private sector can leave state violence off the hook, right? So there's often been movements to shut down private detention centers, um, whereas, you know, of course, private detention centers add an incentive, like a quotas on, on beds that incentivizes them to get more money by detaining more people. But I think we have to understand that, you know, state violence and capitalist violence work hand in hand. And in that case, you know, what we're demanding is an end not only to 
um, the corporate control and the corporate influence, if you will, on border security and on detention policy, but it is an abolition of all violence, right? In whether it's in its state form or, or the corporate form. So it's a demand to end all detention centers, not just an end to private detention centers. So I think understanding that link is important to understand that the state, that state and capital interests actually work together. Do you think that this, these kinds of forms of outsourcing either show the privatization of various forms of state power or something a little different, which is the kind of unclear line that has always existed between state and private power. So both in the form of kind of corporate sovereignty and also state supported capital accumulation or something else entirely. I think probably I would say more of the latter, which Mm. is why the the primary argument that I make about border outsourcing um, is that it is a method of imperialism, first Mm. and foremost. Because really capital accumulation relies on the state even having made, for example, that agreement first, right? So in order for corporations to go in and start building, say, a detention center in Nairu or Papua New Guinea, it has relied on Australia having entered into those state agreements um, with those countries in the first place. And of course, there's a corporate lobby also pushing for those state policies, so I think it's it is as you note. I think it's a synergy. I don't believe in uh, the kind of leftist ideology that the state is, you know, is simply responding to capitalist interests and that you know capital lobby is overblown. I think mm-hmm. that is true, but I also think the state is the grounding for capital. Right? It is what yeah. creates the entire infrastructure for capital to move, for capital to determine how it's going to operate, whether it's everything from, you know, tax rates to tax shelters. And so I think it, it is that it is that synergy. And I do argue that for me, one of the main things we need to be paying attention to, and probably my reason for that argument is also the invisibility of it, mm. is how border outsourcing is really a method of imperialism, because it is creating new contours of dynamics between the so-called global north and the global south that is missed when we only focus on production and consumption, um, or if we only focus on trade numbers and the economy, right? The idea of, for example, the the economy of um, certain countries growing beyond the U.S. or the U.S. being a declining power when it comes to trade wars. What is missed is these kinds of immigration diplomacies in our analysis of imperialism when we only focus on capital flows in that way. One thing that you're that we've kind of hinted at a bit already and that you speak about in one way or another a lot in the book is kind of this question of like where actually is the border? Because we think about the border mm. um, almost in the same way as we think about, you know, the state as something that exists in space out there. And actually there's a, <laughs> yeah. a way of thinking about it, which I think you draw out quite interestingly, which is actually this isn't a thing out there in space. It's kind of more of an ordering logic, I suppose which is, again, a similar way that you can think about the state itself. And that is particularly brought out by these examples of the outsourcing of the border and also the internalization of the border within Mm -hmm. different, often public institutions. So within the UK, for example, various different institutions having a kind of responsibility to report, you know, when they apparently have hired or have, you know, come into contact with an inverted commas illegal migrant. So this kind of... um, yeah, I suppose, you know, the, the way in which border enforcement actually shows us that this is not a thing that we are looking at 
that exists at a particular line on a map or a particular mm-hmm. crossing on a um, at some place in reality. This is actually something that is much more about ordering human bodies, really. Yeah, I appreciate that that question, Grace, and you're speaking to it and your analysis of it because I think it is it is exactly that you know, and again. The fact that border controls is, is less about movement per se. It's exactly that. It's about ordering um, and maintaining control through ordering mm. uh, and bordering as an ordering regime, right? It's contained in the word itself. Um, and it's absolutely that. I think we think of the border often as a line on the map, but the border is elastic. And again, border outsourcing is one of the ways in which we see the border extends far beyond the territorial jurisdiction of a nation state. And that start, you know, just this week in the news, the United States made agreements and has, you know, long been in agreements with countries like Mexico and countries in Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, etc., making agreements to say that those countries are now going to be enforcing the U.S. border, right? Going to be mm. preventing migrants from coming into the United States, even though that is, you know, far beyond the jurisdiction of the United States. But again, it's the U.S. flexing its imperial power. Same with the EU, right? Some of the the worst extension of the U.S. of EU border policies is happening in Libya, right? The horror that is unfolding in Libya that is funded entirely by EU and billions of euros going into detention centers in Libya and the horrors of sexual assault, torture, rape, enslavement, and more in Libya. So absolutely, you know, we're seeing the border expanding, multiplying, really just global in its trajectory of how borders are being enforced. And again, you know, we even have the U.S. officials making declarations that are, you know, our borders are no longer at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's our border with Guatemala. It's the southern border between Mexico and Guatemala, for example. So we're we're starting to, to see that in terms of that expansion of borders. And internally, exactly as you know, you know, one of the things is that crossing the border does not end the struggle for migrants Mm -hmm. and refugees, right? The border is mobile. It can be enforced anywhere within the nation state. It's a really insidious kind of violence because, you know, I'm in Canada and Canada is is perceived as one of those progressive welfare states, particularly our universal health care system. But for undocumented migrants and refugees or even temporary migrant workers who have status, who have legal status as migrant workers in Canada, one of the pillars of violence is the healthcare system, right? Either because Mm. you're refused access to healthcare as someone without status, or because accessing healthcare becomes a pipeline to expulsion. And you know, this, what this kind of, what this does in even progressive welfare states is it mutates the working class you know, nurses, teachers, social workers into border guards, right? And the kind of reproduction of borders becomes this like quotidian workplace ritual. And that's just, that's the care sector. And of course, you know, it's even arguably worse when within the nation state, you know, again, you have this expanding budgets for police, right? And if you get picked up by the cops because of racial profiling, because of the racist foundations of police and the fact that particularly Black people are most likely to get picked up, um, stop mm-hmm. and frisked by police, you know, that means that um, in the United States, for example, the highest proportion of people who are turned over by local law enforcement, whether that's police or sheriffs, are black migrants and refugees, right? African or Afro-Latinx migrants and refugees who are kind of triply punished, 
through the the criminal legal system, then the prison industrial complex, and then expulsion. It's a pipeline to deportation. And so again, even though people are within the nation state, the border has multiplied because the ability to enforce border controls is omnipresent. And so that fear, right, that fear is also Mm -hmm. then what creates precarity and allows for capital accumulation. It's not about single bad bosses. It's about creating an entire infrastructure of control and fear such that migrants and refugees are able to be exploited by capital interest to work for less than minimum wage, you know, to fear unionization, because termination doesn't just lead to termination, it can also lead to deportation. Another thing, as well as having this quite dispersed enforcement of the border, we also see this kind of selective non-enforcement of borders. Mm. I was struck when we had Lale Khalili on the show not long ago to talk about her book, um, Sign News of War and Trade, which is about global shipping. And that, I think, really gave you an indication of how flexible this border regime in the sense of there exist these huge zones of the world economy which are exempted from this bordering lodging and this border enforcement because really enforcing the border in those export processing zones and you know all these different special zones that have been created to facilitate capital accumulation would undermine the flow of goods and people and capital around the world so it comes back to your point really that this is not a politics this is not a kind of politics of movement this is really you know something that I suppose, is is functional to the totality of capitalism. And again, coming back to this point that we can't separate out the public and the private, that this is a kind of, you know, in inverted commas, joint venture between the the neoliberal state and, uh, and, and capital. It kind of, I suppose, then presents challenges as to how we think about resisting something that is quite difficult to conceptualize I suppose Hmm. something that is selectively enforced and non-enforced something that exists in space but doesn't exist in space how should we talk about the border I guess is what I'm trying to ask in trying to kind of build coalitions to resist this kind of border border imperialism yeah and I you know I appreciate that um, and particularly that connection because I think absolutely what the border does and I you know we can see this squarely within as a a pillar of racial capitalism, is not necessarily to deport, but to create a population that is always deportable, right? And that's the difference. It's not necessarily to exclude all people, but it's to create a system of ordering and control where migrants and refugees are constantly deportable and who are not actually deported if they remain compliant. And you know, and I think this is important because we have to understand in the United States, for example, I mean, the U.S. is a you know, one of the largest purveyors of violence, you know, the ability to surveil populations is huge. So it's not as if though the US is not capable of actually deporting all all undocumented people, right? Like it could actually do that, if that was actually what was the point of the border, right? And I think that's important, because it is to maintain undocumented communities as deportable, but not actually to enforce deportations, against all of them. It's yeah. to just to create that fear and precarity. And I think that is important because that reveals how borders are, again, not about exclusion or movement, but it's about maintaining racial capitalism by segmenting labor and by maintaining racism, right? So one of the things that is also central in, a, in addition to capital accumulation 
is citizenship affixes race to the nation state even more by creating certain communities as within the nation state, but not really of the nation state. That is one of the, the ways in which racialization is made, right? Race is constantly made. And the border is one of the ways in which race is constantly made. And in the in the US and Canada, this is particularly stark because the largest populations of people who are actually quote unquote illegal or proportionately are not black and brown people. Like in, in BC, the province in which I live in, until recently, the largest population of people who had overstayed their visas or were working illegally because they were actually on visitor visas were white Americans and white Australians. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that is never part of the imagination of who we're talking about when we hear media refrains of illegals, right? It's racialized. And so I think it's important to understand here that the border is a pillar of racial capitalism and also a tool of racial citizenship. And again, here, you know, the synergy between state and capital in creating race. And so I think the ways in which we fight that is that we have to go beyond the symbol of the border, right? So it's not just Mm. about fighting the border wall, for example. It's not even an open border politics necessarily, but it really is a no border politics, which is to understand that these systems are deeply connected, right? The border doesn't exist separate from, again, imperialism or capitalism or citizenship. It is a pillar of these broader structures. And the kind of fetishization of the border itself means that we often miss miss this. Mm. And so for me, it means that a migrant justice movement is anti-capitalist, is anti-imperialist, because it's not enough to say open the borders and maintain the entire conditions of violence in the world Mm. that even creates migration, right? It means that in order to have a no border politics, we're also fighting against mass displacement. People have the right to remain in their lands. People have the right to remain in their homes. Mm. And so that has to be part of the migrant justice movement is, you know, how are we fighting displacement itself and not only fighting for the rights of migrants and refugees? And so to me, you know, a no border politics or a migrant justice politics that is focused on the border is really part of a much broader global internationalist movement that is anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist and more because these systems are interconnected, right? Like we Mm. have to fight against export processing zones. We have to fight against extractive trade agreements. We have to fight against military imperialist occupations. We have to fight against, you know, the constant cheapening of labor. There's nothing inherently cheap about labor. As we know, there are conditions that create that. And, you know, poverty is, is not a coincidence. It's a consequence of capitalism. And so borders... Are, are just one ways in which these violences are facilitated. It's not a system in and of itself. It has to be connected to this, this broader fight, which may seem overwhelming, yeah. <laughs> but in some ways is less overwhelming, yeah. right? Because we start to see that, oh, it's actually all connected. These aren't mm. separate pieces. I think one thing that's easy to do when we're, we're talking about these issues, particularly issues around migration and international justice, is to slip into this discourse of kind of liberal moralism, right? Of like, mm. oh, it's our job as whoever to protect those less fortunate than ourselves. And to do that, we have to do X and Y and Z. Uh, you know, often this comes along with a, a discourse around globalization that said globalization is here. It's happened. It's been good. Trade is good. Capital mobility is good. But the bad mm-hmm. thing that's happened is that people are moving as well. How do we manage this, right? You obviously don't do that though in your book you're talking much more about not kind of you know 
trying to get states that are as intimately tied up with this process as any other part of the system to do things better. You are talking a lot about building power and particularly building power amongst migrant communities themselves. Now, that is obviously something that is very challenging. And I know that particularly when we're thinking about in the UK, for example, things like organizing couriers and Deliveroo drivers and Uber drivers and things, there are all sorts of barriers that stem from the fact that many of these people are migrants and are organizing in an alien culture, an alien context. There's language issues, there's all sorts of issues, but there's also opportunities. I remember reading actually Callum Kant's book on organizing for Deliveroo, and he talked about how the Brazilian workers were like, we should go on strike. Like, obviously, if we were in Brazil, we would go on strike, right? Mm. So I'm I'm, think, I'm wondering from your experience, how you think we can kind of bridge these divides and take advantage of these opportunities to actually build power on the ground? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question, right? Because that is exactly what the border is intended to do is to create divides and also to create a very real terrain of fear, right? Where the mm. fear is magnified for migrants and refugees, because again, you know, the fear of deportation is added onto all of the other forms of violence and, t- and intimidation that organizers generally face. And I think, you know, here, what to me is, is, is instructive and inspiring, and that I, you know, tried to talk a little bit about in border and rule is really just how much organizing there actually is right and so i i think while there is a lot of truth to the fact that um you know it's hard to organize within migrant communities and of course a lot of times people are legitimately and understandably just like you know i need to get my own right like i went through so much struggle to get here but i think there's another side to that which is that oftentimes when migrant communities are organizing and are mobilizing, and you know, this is true in the United States, there's been massive mobilizations dating back decades, farm worker organizing, the day without immigrants, just so many examples of that. And of course, all across Europe, the organizing that's happening in France and, you know, in Croatia and Serbia, etc., just everywhere in the UK. But oftentimes, I think a lot of these movements have not gotten the support from other organizers or others in the community, right? And so I think that is the central question. And again, it leads us back to how important it is to understand migrant justice movements, not just as a kind of separate parallel movement that we can Mm. offer support to or not, but to understand how central this is to fighting racial capitalism and fighting racial citizenship, right? And not to say like, oh, that's that's not my issue, if you will. Like this mm. is, it's an environmental issue, right? Climate yeah. change is one of the primary drivers of migration. It is a climate justice issue. It is absolutely an issue for workers' rights and anti-capitalism because again, you know, that is both a driver of why people are on the move. It is the exploitation of migrant labor often determines the wage floor, for all workers, right? It's obviously a racial justice struggle. Um, So there is so much bound up and we have to see our movements um, within migrant justice movements, right? To see these as necessarily interconnected. And I think, you know, solidarity is the strongest weapon against fear, right? When people feel that they are supported, when they see that others are supporting the movement, um, that is what gives all of us um, hope. And optimism. And so I think the most concrete thing that we can do is to really see the windows of possibility for migrant justice organizing that's happening in our communities 
and to see how that this is part of a broader struggle, right? I mean, we're in a moment of immensely important Black-led abolition movements to fight uh-huh. police and prisons. And, you know, it is absolutely the case that Black people are at the forefront of who is impacted by restrictions at the border, right? Um, yeah. In terms, you know, the border is anti-Black. And so that is really important as well, right? That we see that an expansive abolitionist vision is an end to all police and prisons and an end to borders and more, right? An end to sweatshops and end to the military. So again, you know, we can, we can make these connections um, and build solidarities such that the terrain of struggle of fear um, is altered and that it is, again, about justice, right? It's not about, like you said, that kind of liberal, multicultural, benevolence mm. response about, you know, oh, refugees welcome or like, oh, yeah. we're all a nation of immigrants, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a politics of charity and humanitarianism and liberalism. Yeah. That is not a politics of solidarity. That is not a politics of revolution. That is not a politics of justice. And so, again, you know, that internationalist interconnected vision is what will what will support um support these movements in these communities and that, you know, people really understand that saying yes to migrant rights is not because, oh, you know, we feel bad for you. It's because we understand how we are bound up in these violences because of border imperialism, right? Again, we are here because you are there. Yeah. We're seeing this quite a bit, this kind of, um, uh, you know, well, the the absence of solidarity really with the way that Biden has, um, what people have responded to Biden's first kind of legislative initiatives because obviously we've got this massive program of kind of domestic infrastructure investment i had doug henwood on the show the other day talking about you know how significant this is in terms of a shift away from the the neoliberal common sense on political economy and yet when we look at migration when we look at foreign policy biden has been just as bad if Mm -hmm. not as trump then you know as people who came before him it feels like this kind of separation between the economic and the political, the domestic mm-hmm. and the international helps us to kind of segment, as you were de- as you were describing, our struggles in such a way that isn't really helpful. How can we kind of make our demands as a left much more coherent such that we cannot be talking about economic justice without talking about imperialism. We can't be talking about climate justice without Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, global reparations and all these sorts of things. Yeah, I appreciate that question because, you know, one of the things that people focused on when Biden became president was, you know, his reversal of certain Trump policies, right? And um, even though he's reversed this again, but his initial announcement where he would no longer support Trump's border wall. And, you know, and there was a lot of praise for that, you know, how he was reversing policies of border militarization. But again, what that completely misses is that most of border militarization is not happening at the site of the border itself. It's happening through these outsourcing agreements. And, you know, there was far less attention on these outsourcing agreements that he signed with Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, right? Where that really is the terrain of struggle. It's not the site of the border. And again, you know, that distinction between the national and the global, I think, falls short. Because if we just treat migrant justice as, oh, you know, what are we doing within our borders? But ignoring how that's completely connected to foreign policy and increasingly outsourcing these kinds of violences, then we'll, we'll miss the mark. And, you know, the Green New Deal is an example of that, right? If, if we have a Green New Deal that is completely focused solely on the national realm, 
in terms of, you know, emissions, in terms of climate justice, in terms of a Green New Deal where there are jobs in the public sector. But we're ignoring how at the same time that means that we are, you know, engaging in massive carbon offsetting in the global south or maintaining extraction in the global south um, and not fundamentally altering the relations between the North and the South, right? Like the global North and the global South ultimately must cease to exist. And again, the North and the South are not, it's not a geographic connotation. The North and the South is about a a relationship of power and violence and exploitation and extraction, right? Like ultimately we need to be completely dismantling that condition of possibility. And that I think is the leftist orientation, right? That we cannot only focus a left project about defining who we are that maintains that differentiation and maintains that violence against the majority of the world. And, you know, we're in an era of global vaccine apartheid, right? Like Mm. people's entire like life, right to life is determined by your access to this vaccine. And in general, people's right to life is determined um, by where you are born alongside other stratifications like race and gender and class and more. And that, you know, I think a leftist response must be internationalist in terms of not being NIMBYs, right? It's a form of NIMBYism where we want justice for ourselves and not others. And we really need to be thinking in that internationalist way. And I think, you know, again, borders here are, I think, allow us, if we spend enough time thinking about it, a lot of clarity, right? It, It forces us to rethink what imperial relationships look like today when we see how border outsourcing is a method of imperialism. You know, instead of these debates about these kinds of Keynesian debates about whether the state is withering away, a focus on the growing carceral state and the growing military state kind of does away with that debate. And this focus on neoliberalism that doesn't look at state and imperial violence, I think can often, not always, but can often be myopic and misleading. In many ways, at the moment, one of the biggest threats that um, we're facing on this front is going to be the kind of weaponization of environmental breakdown to Mm -hmm. impose Mm -hmm. much harsher bordering enforcement at various different places, particularly we're seeing this in Europe. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just a final kind of reflection. How do you think we can go into this age of of climate breakdown, which is undoubtedly what the kind of post-COVID age is, is going to be all about, yeah. responding to this kind of existential crisis that is going to force millions, if not billions of people to move yeah. and uh, and do so in such a way that kind of pushes back against the language, the kind of alarmist language that is going to be used by politicians like Marine Le Pen? Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you bought out Marin Le Pen, right? Because she's huh. it's just so frightening that she's making a comeback at all, but is, mm. you know, making a comeback in some progressive circles, right? Like her new screed of, yeah. quote, borders are the environment's greatest ally. <laughs> it is through them that we will save the planet, right? Like that kind of screed, which, you know, again, is very frighteningly uh, similar to some labor circles who believe, you know, borders are the workers' greatest ally, right? Like that's a that's not that's not a um, the logic that we should be following. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the migration crisis is increasingly linked to the climate crisis, and you know, we just see a uh, a growing escalation in eco apartheid logic, right? Where eco apartheid 
is really connected to the rise of white nationalism. And, you know, we've always kind of had Malthusian theories that the far right has espoused and propagated. But I think there's a, you know, an, an alarming escalation of that kind of eco-apartheid logic. And, you know, some of the white nationalists and the murders, you know, in their kind of rambling screeds and manifestos, they cited um, the link between white supremacy and eco-apartheid. And absolutely, as you know, you know, like this is only the, the kind of climate migration or climate induced migration is on the rise. Like this is not about the future. There are island and coastal communities that are on the verge of submersion mm. today and are being displaced today. And instead of, you know, an actual uh, climate response, we end up with people like Marine Le Pen or, you know, so many others, you know, in Australia, in Europe, in the U.S., basically using climate migration as that alarmist, you know, shut down the border, we're going to get taken over, right? It's like the most recent border panic is the climate crisis. And I think, you know, the climate crisis and its link to migration in our contemporary era and after the pandemic, as you know, I think really will be the central question, right? Are we going to have a climate crisis that, again, is just kind of nimby about no pipelines and no extraction in our backyard? Or are we going to be committing through, for example, a Green New Deal or a global vision of a Green New Deal to reparations, right, to climate reparations, um, to reparations for imperialism, to reparations and, you know, understanding that climate crisis is a symptom of imperialism. It, it, it's a fundamentally it's fundamentally a system or a symptom of the system that we live under, you know, and for me, thinking about the climate crisis in this era um, sharpens what a no border politics look like, right? Because again, it lends itself to two fundamental truisms, if you will, which is that, you know, people have, should have the freedom to stay, which is that to fight the climate crisis, people should not be forced to move from their lands. People should not be forcibly displaced, mm. you know, Countries in the global south, particularly coastal and Pacific communities, are not collateral damage in this climate crisis. They have a right to live. They have a right to remain in their homes. And, you know, a kind of parallel corollary to that is that people have the right to move, right? So the freedom to stay and the freedom to move, I think, really are the kind of orientations that we need in this moment. And again, they're not contradictory, they're bound mm. up in each other, right? And again, if we think only about it as a politics of movement, then we can say, like, what do you mean stay, move? Those are two different things. But mm. they're not, right? They're fundamentally bound up in each other, which is that yeah. no one should be forcibly displaced uh, because of the climate crisis and or, you know, any form of violence. And also we need to ensure that people have the right to move because the climate crisis is real. Mm. And because we have created this crisis, and by we, I mean, you know, governments and corporations of the North and, this, and the economic system and political system we're under, and that we have to allow, we have to allow those who have, who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis to live with dignity, because otherwise we are enacting a form of eco-apartheid, right? Like subjecting the rest yeah. of the world uh, to death. It's like a, a, a kind of bizarre mutation of Elon Musk, right? Like <laughs> he wants us, you know, all to go to Mars. But if we, you know, we can laugh at him, but if we want to maintain our lives and our communities as gated communities, it's, it's essentially an extension of his fucked up logic, right? Mm. Thank you so much, Harsha Walia, for joining me on this 
brilliant episode of World Twin. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. 